Welcome to Off Kilter, a podcast about the fight for economic liberation and what it will take to set us all free, powered by the Century Foundation. I'm Rebecca Vallis, and I'm a former legal aid lawyer turned policy advocate who works with public policy and law, as well as organizing, coalition building, and narrative as tools for building a more just society. One premised on collective consciousness of our common humanity and the inherent dignity and rights that come with being human. Every week, I talk with visionary leaders working to disrupt the off-kilter imbalance of power in the U.S. to build a society where everyone can thrive and experience the shared abundance we all deserve. And as we continue off-kilter's series of conversations with social justice movement leaders, digging into why, in the famous words of Audre Lorde, self-care is political warfare and the role radical self-care plays in their own lives to sustain them in this work, I had a ton of fun sitting down with our next guest in that series, who's a dear, dear friend and colleague, and who's been on this show enough times that she really needs no introduction. And that's Rebecca Coakley. She's a longtime disability rights and justice activist who serves as the disability rights program officer at the Ford Foundation, whose support of the Century Foundation and the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative, I should note, makes this show possible week to week. We had a far-ranging conversation about disabled people as modern-day oracles, especially when it comes to radical self-care, the role of philanthropy in supporting self-care across the social justice movement, requesting workplace accommodations under the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, as a form of self-care, the story behind why she started doing daily Twitter reminders to the disability community to eat lunch, and lots, lots more. And I'll give a quick plug for the last episode of off Kilter that Rebecca was part of last fall as part of a two-part series that we did called Your Work is Not Your Worth, since it's a great compliment to the conversation that we had for this week's episode, and, and it comes up in the conversation as well. And as one final quick programming note, in the spirit of recognizing disabled people as modern-day oracles on the subject of self-care and so much more, several of the disability community's visionaries, whose names Rebecca Coakley invokes throughout our conversation, such as Vilissa Thompson, founder of Ramp Your Voice and a fellow senior fellow at the Century Foundation, and Alice Wong, founder of the Disability Visibility Project and author of Year of the Tiger, An Activist's Life. Some of those folks are some of the very leaders I'll be sitting down with in the coming weeks as Off-Kilter's series on radical self-care continues. I'm really looking forward to those conversations and all that we've got coming up. But if there's someone you'd really like to hear from on the subject of radical self-care, send your nominations our way. You can send us an email at offkiltershow at tcf.org or give us a shout on Twitter at offkiltershow. Now, without further ado, let's go to my conversation with Rebecca Coakley. I hope you enjoy this conversation half as much as I did. Let's take a listen. Coakley, it is always a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come back on Off Kilter. Thank you so much, Phallus. It's always fun to be here. Well, I my only regret is that we're not doing this in person because I miss you. I miss you on a human level. I miss being down the hall from you in in so many different ways. So um, I guess we'll have to make Zoom work for now. But um, I do I do miss seeing you in person. Same here. Same here. It's been way too long. 
It has. And I have to say, it was actually memories of back when we used to work together at the Center for American Progress that um, actually were kind of the original inspiration for the conversation that we're having as part of this overarching series that Off Kilter is doing around radical self-care. Because fun fact, um, you used to feed me. quite literally, when we used to work together down the hall from each other at the Center for American Progress. Um, And um, that was because I was in the stretch of my life, the multi-decade stretch of my life, where I was not doing a good job or any level of intentional job at at taking care of myself. Um, And so um, uh, I'll just be very like out about this as we frame up this episode. I would go whole work days without eating anything at all. And part of that is related to the fact that I live with um, invisible disabilities that include chronic illness that impacts my digestion. And so rather than uh, endure the complexity of what might happen when I eat it, when I eat it, there we go, off to a great start. When I ate, um, I would would avoid eating during the workday so that I wouldn't be held back or slowed down by um, what it actually took to nourish my body. You were really one of the people um, who was instrumental, particularly at the moment in time where I was starting to actually see myself as part of the disability community, um, you were instrumental in, on a daily basis, making sure that I actually fed myself um, when we were at work. Um, and, and now you're a person who actually reminds everyone in the disability community to eat through, um, through Twitter with a, a disability lunchtime reminder that you often do. So um, I, that felt like the, the, the right place to start this conversation. And that was some of the inspiration that um, I had in wanting to have you as part of this series of folks speaking about radical self-care, but talk a little bit about where the um, role that you play for so many of us in reminding us to eat comes from and and what inspired you to start doing this disability lunch Twitter thing um, early in the pandemic. Um, thanks so much, Phallus. Yeah, it actually started shortly before the pandemic. Uh, it was, um, it was ADA week, probably 2019, I think, now that I think about it. And, um, I, like, it had been a really hectic week and I got to the end of the week and I realized I hadn't eaten lunch at all that week. And I had joked with a friend of mine, um, Claudia Gordon, who's over at T-Mobile. And I had said to her, we had joked about how a couple of years previously when we were in the, in the Obama administration, we made it to the end of the week with similar results, realized we hadn't eaten. And then we went and drank way too many mojitos and margaritas and ate nachos at Rosa Mexicana. Um, And so I sent Claudia a text and was like, made it through ADA week. Did you eat lunch at all? And she wrote, she texted me back and said, no. And I was like, okay, this is a problem. Um, And so then I, I texted a few other people, um, including uh, Emily Ledow and Taryn Williams, and just specifically like a list of about 30 disabled women. And I asked everyone, did you eat lunch today? And everyone responded to me with no. And it really shook me. And so, you know, several folks I asked, well, why didn't you eat lunch today? And they're like, well, the week has been a lot. Or I felt like I, you know, the number one excuse I heard was like, I felt like I hadn't done enough to take a break to eat lunch. And 
you know, I, I realized that we were, as a community of disabled women leaders, equating a basic meal with a reward. And it just seems so, like, I'll use my, I'll use my one bleep. It seems so f***ed up to me. Um, and it really made me do some serious thinking about the relationship with food that the community has to a certain extent. Um, and so I started checking in with people regularly about lunch. I'd send emails every now and then, and then I started really tweeting about it. Um, and it's, you know, I think it's one of the things that actually has, has sort of cracked me up where, you know, for sometimes, you know, life gets hectic or, you know, for example, like one week we moved and I didn't tweet about lunch at all that week because we were moving. And I got to the end of the week and my phone rang um, and it was uh, my friend Katie Porter. And Katie said, hey, is everything okay? I haven't seen you tweet about lunch this week. I'm worried about you. And it totally cracked me up because I hadn't, you know, I had thought it was just sort of this little thing in the, in the disability ethos and hadn't realized that it had become a thing. Um, and to me, just the point of making it a thing, you know, is a, to me, like part of the work it's, it, it's, you know, we're no good if the only conversation around sustainability that we have doing disability rights work is one about like how much money we're bringing in, like the sustainability conversation has to be so much deeper than that has to be, how do we take care of each other? How do we um, maintain access to high quality healthcare? How do we maintain access to food? Uh, and, and it really just demonstrates, I think the significant toll that capitalism has taken on taken um, in terms of all of us, that, you know, this continues to be something that we have to do. Katie Porter, obviously a member of Congress who represents um, a district in California, the, the 47th district in California. So thank you, Katie, for uh, <laughs> reminding Coakley the importance of these of these tweets, which, you know, we can laugh about it. And it, it seems like maybe kind of it's a whimsical thing. But um, I, I will say I am one of the people and I know there are dozens and dozens of people out there who actually really appreciate that you do that because it's it isn't just what it seems like on the surface it isn't just a reminder to eat it's it's as you were just starting to unpack it is symbolic of of such a deeper problem and part of why i really wanted to use that um as the kickoff point to this conversation and to have you as part of this um this series about radical self-care and i'll note just i, I it resonates so deeply with me the way that you put it um, the idea of treating um, a meal as though it's a reward. It's like, well, okay, I'll let myself eat after I finish this report that I'm writing on, I'm writing, or I'll let myself get to lunch or, you know, take a break and have dinner or whatever it's going to be. Um, when, once I've finished reading this thing and sending a whole bunch of emails or getting through all the things on my to-do list. And that is, it's such a common way of engaging with our work. It's certainly something I know that I have done in various forms. I'll confess, I even sometimes will do that with, um, or I'll catch myself doing that with even like going to the bathroom because I have to 
to pee, right? It's like, well, I'll, I'll let myself go pee once I finish this email. And y- y- your words often ring in my ears because I've I've heard you um, say what you just said before um, about how these are these are basic human um, needs. These are these are not things to treat as rewards for ourselves, um, and certainly not tied to our work output. So, is there anything else that you want to say on um, that on that piece before we kind of start to get a little bit deeper into this conversation. So, Alice, what did you eat for lunch today? Um, well, so a thing that I have um, started to do that is really working for me um, as a as sort of an in-between that allows me to nourish myself throughout the day while not um, ending up in a place where I feel like I'm doing food roulette or it's like I don't know if I'm going to be out of commission for the entire afternoon because of shutting down my digestive system, um, is I have started eating a particular type of protein bar that really works for me. I'm not trying to do product placement here. They are not a sponsor of the show, but I happen to eat Lara bars. They they work really well for me. They're just all like fruits and nuts and it's supernatural. It's gluten-free. Um, and so I eat a, a couple of those throughout the day. And that is what I was having just before we started to record. That's awesome. I am just finishing up a turkey and Gouda sandwich and a bottle of bubbly water. Oh, I fully support that. And I, I feel like it's perfect that you should be eating that while we're having this conversation. So please feel free to eat while we talk. Mouthful, very welcome. And you already used your one bleep um, with Troy, but I, I figure, you know, given that this conversation is so important, maybe we can give you a second one if you need it. Um, so Cokes, I, just to, to start to get underneath some of what you've already started to put on the table there, um, uh, in a lot of ways, um, in in my opinion, and having done um, social justice work in a variety of different capacities and worked with a variety of different movements, including the disability movement along my, my career, um, in a lot of ways, in my opinion, it it really is the disability community, which which you and I lovingly call the disco, um, uh, that, that many of us have the most to learn from when it comes to radical self-care. And so another person whose words I often have ringing in my head, a, a person we're going to be speaking to in just a couple of weeks as part of this series for Off Kilter's conversations about radical self-care, Alice Wong, an incredible um, activist um, and author of multiple books um, uh, and founder of the, Dis- the Disability Visibility Project. Um, I often have Alice's words ringing in my head because um, as Alice often puts it, disabled people are oracles. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit Cokes about um, what you see as the significance of radical self-care to the disability community and and why members of the disability community are so often positioned um, truly as literal modern day oracles when it comes to um, to a subject like radical self-care. That's a great question, Dallas. And I think for me, a lot of the conversation around self-care has to be parsed out from Um, the conversation around like fulfilling basic human needs. I think this notion of self-care in some ways has been columbused um, by, you know, uh, spa day, like spas and, um, you know, mimosas and, and sort of all of these things. And I think, you know, in, in some ways, 
We've watched non-disabled people elevate self-care to a place where it's like economically also not viable for a lot of disabled people. Um, you know, and so I think part of it is is really just unpacking the fact that like we all have needs for rest um, and to rest when we are tired. Um, we all have needs to, you know, feed our bodies through whatever means we need to feed our bodies. We all have the need to go outside and touch grass or take a walk or, you know, get a breath of fresh air. Um, and so, you know, I think in, in many ways, the, the pandemic um, for some folks made that, made those things more achievable because they were home. They were able to take a, you know, take a, a conference call while taking a walk or things like that. Um, you know, but at the same time, it also, you know, wasn't accessible for a lot of folks, you know, people that people that require a certain level of personal care services and saw those services impacted during the pandemic might mean that they're not able to do the same things that they, they were able to do before, you know, and, and furthermore, you know, I think the notion of actually like taking a break from work and closing the laptop, hitting ignore on the call that comes in at seven o'clock um, in the evening or in the morning, uh, you know, if, if it's, if it's Judy human, she's usually calling you at seven in the morning. Um, and, you know, actually allowing your brain to rest or allowing your body to rest, um, and, and centering yourself, you know, it may, it may mean, you know, saying no to going to X event. Like that for me was a huge thing. Um, the ability to say no, to things because I, I am a person as a as a double Sagittarius that lives with a certain amount of FOMO that feels like I, I should be everywhere. Um, and as a Catholic double Sagittarius, like there's a certain amount of guilt that comes with that. It's like I should be everywhere and I feel bad that I'm not everywhere. Um I'm getting you to, I'm getting you I'm sorry I'm getting you business cards that say I'm the Catholic double Sagittarius. <laughs> what do yeah. you want from me? <laughs> Uh, um, my default is no, like, um, and, and really, you know, pushing myself to say no, like, no, I'm not going to go into the city for this thing. That is a last minute thing that I, I feel like I should be at, or, you know, no, I'm not going to, uh, double book myself or no, I'm going to sit down with my amazing assistant uh, at the beginning of the year and communicate to her that I need to block off Monday and Friday mornings just to have time to think. Um, and, and that I keep my lunch blocks free unless it's, you know, an, an emergency break glass sort of meeting that I need to have. And so I think it, it you know, I, one of the hopes that I have coming into this next phase of COVID is we're not out of it yet. Um, is really thinking about like, what does that look like? And, and how do we move out of the, am I deserving of this conversation? Yeah, but yeah. you know, how do we like actively embrace what it is that we need to take care of ourselves? Uh, no, that's that's beautiful, and um, there's a lot to come back to and to unpack in that. But I'll, I'll just note that the last time that I had you on off kilter, um, we were in conversation with a friend of both of ours, um, uh, who is also a, a disability activist named Keith Jones. Who, if folks are not familiar with, they should they should go check out um, uh, on Twitter um, at DeSoulToucher. Uh, DeSoulToucher. Let me get that right. Um, uh, and um, 
you can check out the episode um, uh, from last season. It's called Your Work is Not Your Worth. And I have to say in in hearing you speak just now about that kind of that deservingness mythology, which is so deeply um, uh, ingrained in in so many of us because of um, the sort of neoliberal underpinnings of um, pretty much everything to do with our our economy and our society at this point in in human history, um, that deserving undeserving um, uh, conversation is is very much related to the the some of the blocks that some of us have around taking care of our in these ways, you were describing that in the context of like, do I deserve to take this break right now, right? Or do I deserve to have lunch? Have I done enough work today? And I have to say, I was thinking a lot in prep for this conversation today about that last conversation that we had, you and me with Keith, about um, how your work is not your worth. And and so I I don't know if there's anything you want to pick up on that, about how that conversation ties into this one and and to a broader conversation about radical self-care. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think um, uh, Keith is just such an incredible friend. And, you know, having people like him in your life that are willing to to check you when they see that you're doing too much or you're being extra, extra, I, I think is really helpful. I think, yeah, I, I, you know, I think we, we're tied up in this notion of um, produce, 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 produce. And I remember I had a math teacher in college who used to say, I'm not, what did you say? I'm not a procrastinator. I'm just crisis oriented. (laughs) And I mean, I even think about, you know, when I worked in the White House and then I left the White House and was working in a a federal agency and everything just seemed so slow. And I was so frustrated that like, it just took forever. And it felt like to get anything done where, you know, having been in the White House and been on the campaign before that, there was just this pace that that I found that I thrived in. Um, but I also had to recognize, and I know you and I talked about this a lot at, at CAP, um, that that pace isn't, you know, as much as we might feel like we're thriving in that pace, uh, it's not always healthy. And it may mean, in fact, that like we're just going so fast that we don't have time to think about the things we should be thinking about. Yeah, for sure. And and there can be something really, I mean, I really resonate with that. And there can be something really addictive about moving at that kind of a pace, right? Because you're you're quite literally getting like hits of dopamine, right? From um, moving at at that kind of, of pace when you do become addicted to it. Oh, another email came in that I have to deal with. It's like super urgent or, oh, we've got another crisis. We, you know, let's, let's, let's go into Olivia Pope mode. But I think, you know, whether or not it's something that folks listening feel like, yeah, that describes me. That's some, that's my favorite way to work. Um, it, it, it's certainly not sustainable. And that is, that is the thing that I certainly learned the hard way as I moved through my own first experience with, um, with burnout, um, actually before the pandemic and overlapping with some of the, the early part of the pandemic. Um, uh, you can learn to run at that pace or to move at that pace all the time um, and, and forget that you actually need to learn the inhale and the exhale um, and to take breaks and to to not always be at that pace, even if it does seem like it feels good. So I appreciate you saying that and also your your candor in in sharing your own experience with um, feeling, you know, in contrast 
like something else might might be a little bit too slow, even if what it actually is by contrast is healthy and is sustainable and and does give you that kind of spaciousness to be more intentional about what you're doing and when rather than constantly being in like respond, respond, respond right now mode. Um, how does radical self-care show up in your life as um, as a disabled person and as a disability activist in particular? And I asked that question, Cox, I think taking us to this next part of the conversation where you you really started to kind of um, uh, to, to take us there with mentioning the pandemic, right? Um, it, this has been a, we're heading into the, the fourth year of the pandemic now, right? This has been quite a stretch of all of our lives. It's it's not, it's not over. It, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. It seems pretty clear. Um, so this is not a, a post-pandemic question. This is a mid-pandemic question. But um, how, how have you um, been navigating um, self-care in an ongoing pandemic that has hit the disability community in, in particular extra, extra hard? Obviously, it's impacted everybody um, who, who um, uh, is alive right Right now, or who who is no longer alive right now as a result of it. Um, curious what that brings up for you, especially given the um, very justifiable feeling of urgency that so many of us feel that can make it feel like it isn't actually safe to rest while our people are are literally dying um, or are living in in deeply unsafe conditions, such as a, a pandemic. You know, that's, that's such a great question. And I think, you know, as I think about it, I mean, a, a couple of things come to mind. Um, you know, the first for me is, you know, not denying the things that bring me joy. Um, and, you know, people that know me well know that um, one of my most significant vices is uh, Legos and building Lego sets. Um, and there was a period of time, uh, shortly after my mom passed away that I dove really heavily into like buying very large, very expansive Lego sets. And then, you know, a few years later, I sort of like held back on that. Um, and you know, with the pandemic, I found myself needing to do that again, like needing to return to it, uh, because I'm not crafty. I'm not a, you know, my mom could knit and crochet, and needlepoint and sew and could do all of those things exceptionally well. And I can't do any of those. Like I can barely, like I can fake a hem on like one of my kids, like dress pairs of pants that they need it for like a presentation or an assembly. Um, but even then, like I'm much more comfortable like stapling it and then like coloring Sharpie over the staple, <laughs> um, you know, but I can work the heck out of a box of like 2000 Legos. And so, uh, quick you know, side just, note, Coakley, I, I have to interrupt you to say, we're going to need to have you tell this story to, um, Indy Didagupta at some point, um, who, who runs the center for law and social policy, because he has never let me live it down that I once stapled an article of my clothing that had a hole in it in front of him. And, um, he was like, Malice, what is this? And I was like, well, I don't sew. And so I just need to say, it's not just me. Indy Coakley did this too. There we go. Sorry. Keep telling your it's, story. It's, it's totally me, Indy. You can totally judge me with, with your cool, uh, quirky sock collection. There you go. Um, you know, and, and I think for me, it, it became one of those things where it was like, no, this is something that like allows my brain to quiet itself and allows my hands to stay busy. 
and um, allows me to have some distance from all the terribleness that's happening outside. Um, and so I just started building my Lego sets again. And um, as so many of my friends and activist spaces across different movements have kids and I find out their kids are into Legos, then I become the bad auntie and start buying their kids like Lego gift cards. Um, you know, and so I have a whole bunch of movement niece and nephews and nibblings who, whose Lego addictions I am uh, extremely enthusiastic about supporting. Um, you know, it, it also, yeah, I mean, it meant taking apps. It meant, um, honestly, it meant asking for an accommodation at work. And, and, you know, as we returned to the office, uh, three, you know, the, the policy at the Ford Foundation is three days a week. And it meant putting in a, a reasonable accommodation request with my boss and, and our uh, people and culture team for two days a week. And I'm not going to lie. I was nervous doing it. I felt weird putting in an accommodation request for an increased level of telework. Um, and it's actually funny because uh, I'm going to mention another, another member of Congress in this conversation. Um, I actually had the conversation the, the day I turned in the, the accommodation request, I had a conversation with Congresswoman Presley. And, you know, we were talking about a, a litany of different things. And I was like, yeah, AP, you know, I had to, I had to put in an accommodations request and I was really nervous. And she kind of laughed at me and was like, like, you're nervous. Why are you nervous? And like, it actually made me like sit and unpack like my own concerns and my own double speak when it comes to like how I view my job, how I view my productivity um, you know, and frankly, also the limits that my disabilities are putting on me as I get older. You know, I'm 44 now. And, you know, um, like, I can't walk multiple miles a day in heels in a, you know, in a big poofy building in Midtown. You know, I, I, my knees won't do it. My back won't do it. And having to take into consideration that I don't want to be um, I don't want to be one of those people that works until their body completely breaks down because I see it in our elders and our elders have done it without any choice in the matter. And that really scares me and really frustrates me. And I, I have to say that was, that was a, a message that you used to deliver to me quite frequently um, in the aforementioned days where I was choosing not to eat at all during the day because that would that seemed to me like a better choice than um, than what I called food roulette. Um, you you were not shy in sharing with me stories about people who are no longer with us um, in in the movement um, in the work um, uh, as as a result um, of uh, of not having um, near nearly as much choice um, in the matter as, as many of us do today. So um, I, I appreciate you bringing that into this conversation as well. Um, I'm curious because, Cokes, you're somebody who identifies as a second generation um, civil rights activist. Your, your parents um, were also um, in the movement. Um, was there anything, um, and you're in particular, you're a second generation disabled civil rights activist, was there anything that you remember learning from growing up with parents who were in the movement when it comes to um, uh, not just how they did the work, but how they showed up for themselves in doing the work? 
Um, I don't think my parents did it well. I don't think my parents are uh, uh, a positive example of setting boundaries. I mean, I um, they were amazing parents and amazing people in their own rights, but my parents didn't have boundaries. I mean, my mom would take calls from work um, all hours of the day and night. Um, my father would um, go into work when he was in extreme levels of pain and discomfort. He would go into work and sit in his wheelchair all day, even though he might be fighting bed sores, um, because he felt like he had to be there for, uh, in the case of my dad, the, the people with disabilities that were coming to the Center for Independent Living that he worked at. And the, in the case of my mom, students who were dependent on her to access accommodations at a community college. And, you know, I remember watching my mom just be so tired and, you know, my mom passed away. My dad passed at 40. My mom passed at um, 51. And, um, you know, I remember my mom getting sick um, and like from the time that she was sick to when she finally saw the doctors and, you know, got a sort of a preemptive cancer diagnosis, you know, she moved her doctor's appointment like four times because she had students that had finals and, um, you know, being on the other side of that now and getting closer and closer to the age that she was when she passed, like, I don't want that. Like, I plan on, on being here as long as I can. I don't want my kids to grow up without me, um, you know? And so it's required me to do a lot of radical rethinking um, about, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shout out Vilissa Thompson, who is the, the uh, never-ending patron saint of boundaries, um, as I lovingly refer to her and say, you know, it's required me to think about boundaries. It's required me to think about what are the standards that I'm going to set for myself and how am I going to hold myself accountable to them? And I, I swear I didn't pay you to give a plug for our next episode of this series because Vilas is literally coming on to talk about boundaries as part of uh, radical self-care. So yes, and yes, and yes. Um, and she deserves that title of patron saint of boundaries and more. Um, uh, Cox, um, I, I want to, I want to also stay with the theme of accommodations here for just a moment, because it also feels like that's worth digging into on its own right a little bit as well. And we're going to have a number of guests from the disability community as, as our next um, several set of, of guests um, uh, to, to lead the conversations in, in our upcoming episodes as part of this, this radical self-care series that, that feels right. It also started to happen organically with the people who I was thinking about as some of the, um, really the, the, um, the leaders whose wisdom I have most benefited from on these fronts um, over the years. Um, uh, but, but it feels like it's worth diving just one more moment into accommodations as, as a form of radical self-care. And, and that actually is part of what was in my head while I was thinking about 
people with disabilities as as oracles when it comes to a, a conversation that has, as you put it, been Columbused by um, the um, not just the spas and the makers of mimosas, but it, it seems like pretty much you know there, there's like now a self care industry basically that that's all kind of fluff and um, which which as we talked about in the uh, kickoff episode today this series with Aisha Nyandoro, it's it's just completely whitewashed and papered over what Audre Lorde and other leaders who pioneered this concept of, of radical self-care decades ago were, um, were thinking about and were looking to invoke in, in, in bringing forward the concept. Um, so what, what, um, what else do you feel like needs to be said around um, accommodations as a, a form of, of self-care um, for, for anyone who identifies or doesn't identify as a member of the disability community, but who is covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act? You know, Vals, I'm really frustrated with the framing of uh, accommodation solely as a compliance issue. I mean, I, I find myself thinking a lot about um, uh, Neil Romano, who used to be the Assistant Secretary of the Office of Disability Employment Policy at Labor during the Bush years. And Neil really hated the conversation around compliance because one of the things that frustrated him was that, you know, as long as we relegate accommodations to a compliance issue, um, it doesn't center the conversation on giving your employees with and without disabilities, let's be real, what they need to thrive. And so holding back accommodations, not feeling comfortable asking for accommodations, and from a manager perspective, being a jerk or an cat about your staff's need for accommodations, it's, it's actually harmful like both physically and emotionally harmful. And it also, frankly, you know, to go back to the capitalist language, like it harms the work. And there's this notion that people accessing accommodations are getting around on something or that people who are accessing accommodations don't really need them. And that's gaslighting. It's, it's really harmful and it's really detrimental to the workplace to a, an employee's relationship with other employees, um, you know, and and to the individual that needs them, it's it's saying I'm not going to give you what you need to not kill yourself in this doing this job, um, to not actually cause you physical or emotional pain to do this job. And, you know, as, as we talk about the return to office, because it's not return to work, because I think that's an, an important clarification, because people have been working this whole time, and people have been ridiculously more productive this whole time throughout the pandemic, um, while having increased workplace flexibilities. Um, and it, it really feels um, gaslighting. Or it feels uh, emotionally abusive when I hear these stories of, of friends and colleagues of mine who are being given the runaround, who are having their work ethic or their quality of work questioned um, because they need an accommodation uh, as we enter this next phase of COVID. Yep, that's that's really well put, and it's it does feel incredibly timely given the shifts and some of 
the navigation that we're watching organizations and leaders and entities all move through in in terms of trying to figure out what does it look like to um, to work and to to do our work potentially somewhat differently in um, in light of a, a continued pandemic that is not over that is still continuing that is just moving into new chapter after new chapter, um, uh, uh, given that there are a lot of folks for whom in-person work um, five days a week is, is it's just, it's not going to work as a matter of their their health and their, their well-being. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit um, and talk a little bit about um, the role of philanthropy in supporting self-care and, and, and particularly for people doing some kind of social justice justice work. Um, uh, and I, so I'm going to ask you to put on your philanthropic hat for a minute here, Cox. You are the um, uh, the disability rights program officer at the Ford Foundation, one of the, the um, many hats that you have worn over many years um, in the disability um, rights and justice movement. Um, and as we have this next part of the conversation, I, I want to give a plug to um, an episode that we had um, earlier in February as part of this series of conversations about radical self-care with the uh, brilliant, amazing labor journalist, um, Sarah Jaffe, who's the author of a book called Work Won't Love You Back. And and we actually talked a lot in that conversation about the role of philanthropy in social justice work more broadly. But um, but for purposes of this conversation, I would love to give you the opportunity to share um, uh, thinking that you have, maybe um, ideas that you have, uh, observations, reflections, now that you've been inside philanthropy philanthropy for a couple of years, as opposed to being on the outside asking for money, um, uh, about what it could look like, and, and, and to the extent that it does, what it does look like for philanthropy to show up as um, a, a, um, a part of this work, that uh, as a leader in this work, that support that could and and possibly could do a better job of supporting self care for the people who are doing the work on the ground. So where where do you want to take that first? You know, I feel like this is one of those things that because of uh, philanthropy's eugenics based roots, it it tends to be hesitant to have the conversation about. But I do feel like uh, as more activists and advocates transition into philanthropy. I think that there's a a sort of turning of the Titanic in some ways in this conversation. I mean, something I find myself doing a lot of times in talking to, um, uh, in talking to prospective grantees, uh, particularly if they're bringing in people with disabilities as contractors, is I ask those people, with disabilities about their retirement plans? Like, do they have retirement plans? Are they saving for retirement? What does that access look like? I think I find myself uh, watching the um, the the baby boomers con- with disabilities continue to have to stay in the movement work because they don't have retirement, because they built the structures as they were working in them. And so something that, yeah, I do find myself oftentimes in, in conversations with elders or to quote my friend, uh, Alex Tom out in the Bay Area, yelders, young elders about like, what is your retirement plan? Like, what do you do? Like, what does the future look like for you? Because I actually want to put in their heads that it is really messed up that a majority of them think that they're going to have to work to their deaths. 
um, and that we actually have to fundamentally shift how we think about this work in the disability rights space to create an alternative. Um, you know, I think a lot about, and I, I often ask organizations about their sabbatical policy and what does their sabbatical policy look like? Um, you know, uh, I had a great conversation before I came into philanthropy, actually, when I was still at the National Council on Disability, I reached out to my friend um, and avowed futurist Trista Harris and asked her, you know, how can I get, how can we shift the conversation around mental health care and organizations? And what can, you know, and at the time, I mean, Valeth, you and I were even then having the earliest conversations around disability and philanthropy, you know, and I remember saying to Trista, like, are there funders that ask these questions? And what are the, what are the right questions that as a grantee or a prospective grantee, folks should ask of funders? Like, can I use these dollars for X? Or what would it mean to um, ensure that, you know, staff of color in majority white organizations have access to mentors? Like, what are the, what are the mechanisms as a funder that you can use to drive the kind of organizational change that you know is needed for, frankly, the survival of your community? Yeah, I love that. And I, I feel like like the concept of a sabbatical may be the closest that we ever get to the idea of, of funding rest, right? Of like of normalizing rest as part of a um, as part of the work and is necessary to the work. But um, it 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 really is something that doesn't get talked nearly talked about nearly enough, and which remains the a concept that is within reach, an opportunity that is within reach for so few people, and and something that um, often comes far too late in 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 someone's career, and and far too um, infrequently. The concept that it's something that you only get once, or that you only get once after decades. And, and um, I was actually just this morning having a conversation um, over text message with a close colleague in this work who I will not name, I will not out, but um, she was she was saying how excited she is to have a sabbatical finally coming up. She's been doing um, public policy work now and, and law reform work for, um, I believe, 24 years. Um, She's got a two-month sabbatical coming up with the organization she works with this summer, and she's so excited for it. Um, and it just like hit me, it washed over me. I'm thinking about like all the time that it took to get to this moment where she's going to have two precious months, and then it's going to be gone, and that'll that'll be the one chance that she's gotten to actually have not just the rest, but also the space that comes with not being in the grind every single day, and 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 thinking from my own experience about what happens when I take time away from work for, that's more than just a weekend or more than just a one-week vacation, something that I've been fortunate and extremely privileged to have the ability and the flexibility and the autonomy within my work in the past few years to be able to do is to, to try to take the month of August 
not entirely off, but a chunk of it off, or at least not to have meetings. No meetings, August is a thing I have done at different points. And like, oh my God, the difference in my quality of thinking, in the, the, the creativity of the ideas that I'm able to bring, but also just the level at which I'm able to show up in the work after I take that kind of a break. And, and that's not even, you know, a full sabbatical. It just, it makes me, it makes me so passionate about um, the conversation that we should be having and that I would love to see philanthropy having more um, and more visibly and at a higher volume decibel um, of, uh, you know, like what could it look like for instead of just um, the, the goals and the deliverables and the outcomes driven funding that is the model that is is so predominant within our current philanthropic um uh, uh model um you know which is one which is basically just funding non-stop non-stop productivity all the time produce 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 like you were saying like what could it look like for philanthropy and for thus our organizational cultures who respond to and often cater to what what philanthropy um, lays out as what dollars are on the table for, um, what what could it look like for us to to, to actually see a, a a philanthropic movement that a philanthropic space that recognizes rest, that values rest, and that sees and names rest as part of the work too. Um, and, and yes, sabbaticals might be part of that, but with burnout now emerging as, as, as Alex Lawson said in um, one of our recent episodes as part of this series, the episode called Finding the Technique That's Relevant for You, he described burnout as enemy number one when it comes to the social justice movement. I'm curious what you what your reaction is to that. How radical a concept is it for philanthropy to, to come to recognize and and to to visibly and vocally recognize rest as um, as co-equal with productivity and if not co-equal at least on the board. You know, Vallis, I I think it's it's the next corner. I think it's the or it's the the thing coming around the corner. I mean, I find myself thinking about it a lot, particularly given the level of activism that is produced by, but also, frankly and unfortunately, expected um, from uh, women of color, from disabled folks. Uh, you know, I mean, whether it be fighting three rounds of snap cuts or, you know, the the fight around the public charge or the ongoing attacks on on proposed immigration reform, you know, I, I think every movement is exhausted. And I think at the same time, um, when the the personal is professional and when the professional is the personal, like when you're working for the cause of the betterment of your own community, we don't often stop and think about, or we don't from philanthropy. I want to say we don't stop and think about the additional labor that, that the, the toll of that labor, the impact of that labor that's expected of folks. And so it's like, okay, that campaign wrapped down. Now what's the next thing? What is the next thing we're focusing on? Um, you know, and really thinking about, is there something philanthropy can be doing? Is there some sort of structure or, or mechanism by which we can support 
people and having a bit of a soft landing? Can we help people think, can we support people in, um, in centering themselves for a period of time? You know, whether I like, I, I, I keep going to the example in my head of the, the MacArthur Fellowship, which mind you only goes to like a handful of people every year, but it is really the type of dollars that it would take for, you know, somebody to take off a substantial period of time um, from capitalist-centered employment to breathe, to rest, to sleep, uh, you know, and and, you know, I think that there needs to be some serious thought about that. I think that there needs to be a concerted effort by philanthropic institutions who are equally uh, responsible for the demands that are placed on sort of the nonprofit industrial complex um, to say we have to, to structure things differently. We need to think about how we do things differently. You know, and I think it's something that, you know, I'm very lucky that, you know, my direct supervisor comes out of activism as well, because it's it's the kind of thing where, you know, as she and I sort of bat around ideas about what grant making should look like, um, it's the kind of thing where we're both like, man, something like that would be really helpful. Like, how do we think about, you know, how do we invest in our movements beyond just operational costs. But like I said, like, how do we actually shift the conversation around sustainability to one that's not just focused on budgets, but one that's focused on the well-being of our people? Yeah, no, I, I you just put that beautifully. And um, just like the word invest, right? It, it so rarely gets associated with anything that can't be um, numerically reduced to some kind of deliverable, right? The whole concept of ROI, return on investment, and so the the common, the predominant model within um, within philanthropy today is is you know how many how many papers are you going to be publishing? How many events are you going to host? How many people are you going to reach? Et cetera, et cetera. Those become the deliverables that go along with um, a grant proposal and what you get measured against when you when you end up reporting on what you did with the dollars, but invest. As you're describing so eloquently, it, it investing in a movement is 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 something that takes a level of thoughtfulness and a level of strategy that goes beyond just what did you get out of an individual grant cycle in terms of very specific numerically quantifiable deliverables, right? It's it's what what did you do to support this movement in a way that is going to ideally redound beyond just the immediate um, uh, uh, period uh, during which dollars changed hands. And I, I think that's a lot of what I hear you saying there. So um, I'm very interested in this conversation and, and very hopeful that as you um, look in your mug and read the tea leaves um, and say you think this might be coming around the corner, I am very hopeful that that is the case with so many people around us who are the leaders whose vision we so desperately need in this global paradigm shift moment. 
burning out one after another and trying to just make it to tomorrow when what we need is for them to be at their at their best and and what that takes is being able to rest right it it shouldn't take um, somebody having covid right to to get to take a couple of weeks where they're they're not produce produce producing um, and and yet there are there there is so little understanding of that now so um, Coakley, I want to stay for for just another moment um, uh, uh, in this um, with you with your Ford Foundation hat on and and ask um, uh, if you have anything particularly exciting coming down the pike. I know you're always working on lots of amazing, exciting projects. You fund a lot of really incredible, fantastic, and visionary work. Um, we at the Century Foundation and the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative are eternally grateful that the Ford Foundation is a supporter of our work. Is there anything you want to give a preview of that might be coming that folks might be interested in? You know, I find myself thinking a lot about um, banking and, and economics in the disability community. I mean, we, we've obviously had the numerous conversations around the need for increases or elimination of asset limits, elimination of marriage penalty, you know, but I find myself thinking, you know, also about like the fact that we can't get small business loans because we don't count as a marginalized community to the Small Business Administration. And, you know, what would it look like to, you know, sort of take the reins of capitalism and and reframe things and, and do something differently? I mean, I, I, I don't know what that looks like yet. I'm sort of in the early stages of, you know, throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. But I find myself thinking about, you know, what would it look like to have, to, to go into a bank and have, you know, the bank staffed by people who are also benefits planners, um, you know, who who can help you figure out, you know, what can you save? How can you access these services? Or, or you know, maybe they're not, you know, the bank staff are not benefits planners, but they're benefits planners on staff. Um, you know, what would it mean to be able to move from a place where we're paying GoFundMe a ridiculous service fee for every person with a disability who's just trying to fundraise to be able to pay, pay for a service animal or pay to have a wall removed in their home. Or, I mean, we know that over one third of GoFundMe's are for uninsured disability related expenses. What would it mean to like take that business from them and invest that in our community? I am so excited about that I, that project, that idea, and it, it feels just so eminently scalable. It's like you're starting a conversation that then becomes a model that then can completely transform um, dis disabled people's access to uh, to capital, and and in a way that is actually also very connected, I think, to this conversation about um, radical self care. Given that that um, sometimes it, it what it what people need um, comes with a price tag, and and one that for a lot of people is is in some cases something that they can't afford and that there might not be public policy responses that are, are adequate to, to help them meet that need. So um, I'm, I'm really excited by this and, and I'm, I always know you've got something good that you're, you're cooking up. Um, is there anything else that you want to name just as we close out this conversation about radical self-care when it comes to any other practices that are important for you, that have been important to your success, to your sustainability in this work, um, radical or otherwise? And, um, and I I know there's a lot of folks out there who probably could benefit from learning from you the way that I and so many others have as well. I will say that the intentional scheduling is a big thing. So the last meeting of the day 
every day should be with someone that you like. And you should only meet with people you like and who feed your soul on Fridays because nobody wants to go into a, a weekend as a Debbie Downer. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, so you're, you're bringing together the, um, the creating um, and choosing joy as well as the, the intentional scheduling practice as well. I love that. Um, uh, Rebecca Coakley is the Disability Rights Program Officer at the Ford Foundation. Um, she is one of my dearest, dearest, dearest friends in this work, and I always love being in conversation with you, Coakley, on air and off air as well. Thank you for all that you do for your incredible leadership in this in this movement, and and for always reminding me to eat, um, and for being such a model to so many of us when it comes to showing up for ourselves in this work, so that we're able to continue to show up for the work itself. Um, uh, and just a lot of love to you and to the whole family. I miss you. Miss you too, Valis. We'll talk soon. Take care. And that does it for this week's show. Off Kilter is powered by the Century Foundation and produced by We Act Radio with a special shout out to executive producer Troy Miller and his merry band of farm animals and the phenomenal Kings Floyd, who keeps us all in line week to week. Transcripts, which help us make the show accessible, are courtesy of Cheryl Green and her fabulous feline co-worker, Ruru. Find us every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. And if you like what we do with the podcast, send us some love by hitting the subscribe button and rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts to help other folks find the pod. It really does help. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.